I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at RAINnetwork.com. Welcome to RAIN's Essential Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Emma Kami, and I'll be your host today. On June 6th, the Kokovka Dam in southern Ukraine collapsed. It's unclear what the cause of the damage was, whether it was the result of an explosion by Russia or Ukraine, or from where from previous sustained damage. The collapse will impact crop yields and could force Kiev to modify its counteroffensive. Here to provide an update on the situation and insights into what's to come from both Russia and Ukraine is RAIN's Eurasia analyst, Matthew Orr. Welcome, Matthew. Hey, Emma. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. Uh, so to start us off, uh, what are the biggest effects of the destruction of the dam and how will it affect uh, Ukraine's counteroffensive? Yeah, I appreciate the question. I, I think that we need to remember that the biggest effects of the dam's destruction are right not necessarily the military ones, although we'll definitely mention those, but I think they're certainly more so economic, humanitarian, and environmental. Uh, Economically, this is going to be very damaging for Ukraine, um, and mostly because it will very adversely affect agricultural output uh, in, this, in, this, in, in southern Ukraine, in the regions that border the, the reservoir and the southern Dnieper River. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, the biggest is just that the, the water from the river is obviously used to irrigate um, major agricultural lands. Uh, and so now without that being, ha- with the water level falling, without access to that water, um, some of this very fertile, very rich, uh, very, you know, stably high producing agricultural land will not be able to produce what it was um, in the past. Moreover, it's going to be economically damaging, of course, because the the the, the hydroelectric power plant uh, on the lower Dnieper was destroyed. But even higher up the river, that's going to change how much uh, water they can they can run through the gates on the other hydroelectric plants on the Dnieper, um, and then you can add on to that the destruction to sewage systems, of course, fresh drinking water systems uh, along the river, um, and it's clear that that economic damage is is going to be you know very negative for Ukraine uh, in both the short and long term, and then of course there's the humanitarian impacts. Uh, the this whole area of Ukraine, this lower part of Ukraine, is now going to be, because of the damage I just described, much less of an attractive place to live. Uh, and so it's going to further uh, you know, uh, in- encourage Ukrainians to leave this part of Ukraine farther west in their country and possibly ultimately uh, to, to the European Union uh, farther west, uh, basically to try to you know, uh, escape uh, the collapsing living standards as a result of this. Uh, and then, of course, you tack on to that uh, the ecological damage, a lot of which will be best described as generational. Um, of course, the area below the dam's destruction is going to see uh, you know, entire ecosystems changed and destroyed, large uh, swamp areas flooded. Um, uh, of course, now it's going to be flooded with a lot of the, the trash and debris uh, from uh, the flooding of these civilian areas that's going to damage all kinds of things, even things like um, uh, uh, you know fishing or other uses of the, of the delta for civilian transport, where previously navigable areas are no longer going to function correctly. 
um, uh, thing, things like that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, above, above the river, you're going to have this new issue where the, the, the reservoir where the water was previously held is now fallen. And actually, the, the, the bottom of that uh, of the river at that section was a place where a lot of this agricultural runoff, also industrial runoff from higher up the river, um, inclu- including things like he- uh, uh, heavy metals and other t- kind of toxic elements and chemicals, essentially, um, you know, pooled or or sunk into the, the the water at the bottom of the reservoir. Now, as that dries out and becomes more and more exposed, you could essentially get kind of this toxic dust in the area um, uh, around the reservoir. That's definitely going to be not only um, uh, harmful to to the wildlife and, and things around it, but of course. Um, is is going to you know damage that ecosystem for a long time. So I think that it's important to remember that those are really the biggest impacts of this. Um, and you know so much is now going to be need to be done in terms of the the dollars and and re- reconstructing Ukraine would have to go to you know mitigating the long term impacts of this destruction. And so that's definitely not something that can be forgotten. In terms of how it affects the military situation in Ukraine's uh, counteroffensive, I think it definitely does. Uh, the biggest way is that it allows the, the the Russian army to redeploy many of its units that it had positioned on the Lower Dnieper Delta area uh, across from Ukraine's uh, Kherson, the, the city of Kherson mainly, um, to you know farther east up into the uh, to the Zaporizhia region to help the to help those Russian forces repel Ukrainians counteroffensive. Of course, the Ukrainians can also move some of their own forces from the sector uh, in that direction. But for the Russians, that's going to play a, a much greater benefit because they had been forced to hold a disproportionate amount of forces there uh, to repel against the possibility of Ukrainian raids, even if it was, even if it was never a, a full-scale amphibious invasion, which you know I and, and most other analysts never really thought was a serious possibility. Um, you know, even these these raids to seize key areas like the city around the dam, etc., all that becomes you know uh, impractical and, and really not possible at all, and so it, it disproportionately militarily. Uh, benefits Russia being able to, to to reposition forces to that area. And now that we're two weeks in about, how is Ukraine's offensive progressing? Yeah, and right, of course, this dam destruction comes as, you know, Ukraine's counteroffensive com- commenced. Uh, I don't think that those two things are, are a coincidence. I think that it's uh, much, much, much more likely that, that Russia uh, is, a, is is the perpetrator of this of this attack uh, and a large reason for the attack, in addition to some of the things I mentioned earlier, was kind of the military benefits of it. And, you know, you, some could argue that it, that's already playing out in what we've seen, right? Now the Ukrainians um, are having to uh, conduct their offensive at a time where the Russians are able to concentrate even more of their men and materiel uh, along this front, along these, these, these very well defended positions. And so far, the Ukrainian offensive is not going well. I think it's probably going worse than the Ukrainians expected it to go. Um, And and here's why. Uh, We did see the Ukrainian forces make some gains um, in the southern Donetsk region. Uh, They took back several settlements. They seized seized several square, uh, several dozens of square kilometers of territory. The problem is, is that a lot of this territory was before 
uh, Russia's main defensive lines, and it doesn't really appear that the Russians fought that hard to defend it uh, and instead withdrew uh, to their defensive lines in the area. So it was a relatively easy place for the Ukrainians to, to retake. And then if we go farther uh, west into the, the Zaporizhia region, there the Ukrainians did uh, make what looks like a breakthrough attempt. Uh, it's unclear how many forces really took part in this. Uh, it looks like at least one of the Western trained and equipped brigades that have been preparing uh, in, in NATO countries was took part in this, uh, and the offensive appears to have taken heavy losses and not really um, re- resulted in significant uh, territorial uh, gains to speak of whatsoever. Um, uh, of course, there the, there was widely circulated videos of what equipment the Ukrainians lost, and now all kinds of numbers are being thrown out. I saw that you know yesterday President Putin uh, said some numbers about how many Ukrainian losses there were and how many Russians losses there were, and, and both numbers were likely um, quite inflated. But you know, at the end of the day, um, it doesn't look like that attack had much success. More broadly, um, so on the one hand, you could say it's not going very well. On the other hand, it's important to remember that this, so far, the attacks we've seen have really, you could say, for the most part, have been concentrated on, uh, you know, trying to, to probe Russian defenses and really get Russian units to reveal themselves, reveal their locations, reveal, um, uh, you know, wh- where their supply dumps are, reveal where they may send in reinforcements from, things like that. Uh, and so really, this is a very, still a very, very p- preliminary stage. Uh, and the, the evidence of that is just the fact that such a tiny amount, again, only one, maybe two, um, probably not three of Ukraine's uh, uh, offensive maneuver units were committed to this, which means that they still have, you know, at least a dozen, um, uh, if not slightly more than a dozen of those units to commit to the, the offensive at some point in the future. So Right now, you know, it's still not going particularly well, but I think that it's still very, very early, and the Ukrainians still do have some time to turn things around. And what was the significance of Russian President Vladimir Putin's recent meeting with Russian war correspondents and bloggers, uh, and what does it tell us about the trajectory of the war? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a great question. I mean, this this was a really significant event, actually. Um, this was probably Putin's you know, longest, most substantive, deepest, uh, you know, public event about the war um, that he's really conducted since the war, where he's really provided um, interesting and, and, and you know, uh, somewhat substantive answers to a lot of interesting questions. For me, the points that really stick out about this are were about what he said about future mobilization Um and, and maybe to a lesser extent what he said about red lines. So about mobilization, he really, really hammered home that he does not want to do another round of mobilization. Um, he, made, he made that kind of clear. Uh, he, when, he, when talking about another round of mobilization, he was a bit defensive and he kind of um, you know, threw around numbers like mobilizing a million more men, two million more men. Um, you know, the, the, the idea being that that would be um, overkill and possibly unlikely to even... Uh, achieves really significant results for Russia and, you know, while coming with all the drawbacks of more mobilization. Um, so for me, that was further investment in the strategy where he's really hoping that the the, the volunteer drive and getting Russians to sign contracts for, for, for service um, is, is going to be, is, is going to provide enough 
manpower to replace losses and allow Russia to continue holding its gains um, in Ukraine. Yeah, and then the second one was on uh, red lines where he also got very defensive when he was asked about this. Um, and he said, you know, the, the invasion itself was a response to, to violations of our red lines. And then when asked what more, or not really directly, but when, when you know, trying to point out what things Russia could do to respond to violations of its red lines, he basically, you know, trotted out events that we've already seen, um, things like st- striking uh, uh, Ukrainian government buildings in Kiev, um, uh, striking Ukraine's civilian infrastructure, um, you know, admitting to that directly. Um, and he basically said that the, things like that were already sufficient uh, responses to, to Western crossing of Russia's red lines. Um, that answer was very interesting because that's one that some of this, this far-right crowd is not going to like. For them, that sounds like Putin is basically saying that Russia doesn't really have a lot of good options for, for escalation or retaliation. Um, and that means that Russia is going to basically continue in its current strategy and not do much to escalate the war as some of these escalation advocates would, would, would want. Um, so for me, I think what overall what the, the message that those two things send is that Putin is still really kind of hoping that he doesn't have to, you know, overkill or overmobilize or really up the ante for himself even more. Uh, and he's trying to kind of, you know, temper or, or throw some cold water on that idea. Um, and I think in his mind, he hopes that he can just wait that wait out the Ukrainians and wait out the West. Um, if it doesn't happen this year, I think he, he really hopes that some sort of negotiation can start um, maybe at the beginning of next year, um, particularly, again, if he hasn't declared another round of mobilization, etc. Um, so we'll, we'll see. It's, it's still unclear. Uh, you know, I I'm tend to be very doubtful that the Russians are actually going to I mean, basically, when we talk about entering negotiations, really, that would, I think that's really only going to happen if the West cuts off support to Ukraine. Um, And essentially, negotiations in that sense would essentially be, you know, Ukraine accepting Russia's demands. So I think we need to be careful about that. But in any case, I think that the, the meeting showed that Putin is still worried about public opinion in Russia. He's also still looking for outside opinions on how the war is going and what would be popular and what Russia should do, um, particularly in this environment where he's skeptical of some of the things that his defense minister, Shaigu, um, and, and other high-ranking officials have told him. And Putin's kind of demonstrated it in public where he gives people like Shaigu and Gerasimov the, the cold shoulder and doesn't even want to you know, look them in the eyes and things like that. So, yeah, o- overall, I think it was a, a really significant event that can tell us some interesting things about Russia's resolve to continue the war and that it's, it's, it's not backing down, but it also doesn't really have a lot of good options uh, in terms of, you know, when and how it's going to, to end the war. Definitely a lot to keep following, and I'm sure our listeners um, will be um, ready to listen to whenever you come back on the podcast and have an update for them. Thank you so much for the analysis, Matthew. Yeah, sure thing, Emma. You can learn how geopolitical events like this could affect your business with Rain Worldview. Our flagship risk intelligence products provide clients with the access to the insights and analyses they need to make more informed decisions and drive better risk management outcomes. Sign up at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emma Kami. Thanks for listening.